Welcome back to the 430 Movie. We got our expert programmers here to curate Fantasy Theme Week's of classic film from 1998 film directed by Steven Soderbergh called Out of Sight yes Soderbergh directs it with such a sort of confident self-assured style Lex Luthor in Superman what is it about Gene Hackman that uh... his performance it's off the charts but still in reality fiendishly gifted 1981 Sam Raimi Opus The Evil Dead oh yes fine choice Sam Raimi invented entirely new ways to get shots that should not have been possible with the amount of money that he did not have charade oh directed by Stanley Donnan it's a textbook screenplay it's just effortless and there's not a wrong note in this movie can't say enough great things about it we'll be back next Friday with an all new episode of the 430 movie wherever you listen to podcasts join us now for the 430 Movie. The 430 Movie Podcast is available weekly wherever you listen to podcasts and on the free Electric Now app. Download it today. If you think you felt a great disturbance in the force, you're not wrong. Ed Gross and me, Mark A. Altman, have a new oral history coming out from St. Martin's Press. It's Secrets of the Force, the complete, uncensored, unauthorized oral history of the Star Wars saga. So wherever you buy books, audio and video pick it up today and you can learn the secrets of the force and don't miss our oral history of star trek in stores now and of course nobody does it better the complete oral history of james bond in digital hardcover paperback and audio that is all sundays on electric now tune in to the official leverage redemption after show a very distinctive podcast with me yell teagle and my co-host felicia michelle each week we'll be breaking down another episode of leverage redemption plus we've got exclusive interviews with the stars as well as some games and we'll even be showing off some amazing fan art so after you watch leverage redemption on imdb tv you'll definitely want to join us here to catch all the easter eggs and behind the scenes fun the official leverage redemption after show a very distinctive podcast sundays on electric now If you like listening to this podcast, you'll love watching us on Electric Now, the free video streaming app featuring video versions of all your favorite Electric Surge podcasts, along with full seasons of The Librarians, Leverage, the exclusive Leverage Redemption After Show, as well as Flash Gordon serials, hysterical comedy specials, and much more. Download it today from your favorite app store or watch us on Roku, Stir, DistroTV, Zumo, Sling, or Plex. Welcome to Best Movies Never Made, the podcast where we explore interesting and infamous movies that never made it to or through production. I am your co-host, Josh Miller, and with me, as always, is Mr. Steven Scarlatta. How you doing today, Steve? Oh, you beat me. I'm doing doing all right. Thank you. (laughs) I gotcha. Um, uh, We are very excited to bring back our friend and returning champion guest, Best Movies Never Made. Writer, director, Mr. Fred Decker. Great to be here. Love you guys. Um, for our longtime listeners, or actually rather probably more so for 
our non-longtime listeners. Um, Fred has been on the show multiple times. We highly recommend that you go back and listen to our episodes with him, including the 3D Godzilla, which if I remember correctly, was your very first professional gig. Is that correct? Yep. Um, his Johnny Quest script for Richard Donner's company, which Steve and I have got on the record many times on this podcast. When people ask us, uh, what is maybe not the the project that you most wish it had happened, but when we're just talking about a script that remains a standout for us as one of the best scripts we've ever read for this podcast that did not get made into a movie. Uh, it's just so much fucking fun and would have been a great movie. Um, Fred also, for those who don't know, is a diehard James Bond fan. So he was on our two-part episode about Warhead, which was one of the many Thunderball attempted reboots that morphed into the Sean Connery Never Say Never Again, which is one of the more hated James Bond movies that upon rewatching it, I realized I actually love. Um, well, I'm not afraid to say it. It's mainly because it just has one of my favorite stupid James Bond bits where he thinks he killed a guy with his own urine. Um, when he's fighting the guy who played the giant Nazi from Raiders of the Lost Ark. It's just such a fun scene with such a great dumb joke at the end. Um, but today we are going to be talking with Fred about his sequel to sequel slash reboot, you could say, of Cliffhanger, um, which we will get to in a second. But to lead things off, before we get to Cliffhanger, um, normally we would begin talking about Fred's origin story, but we kind of covered that in Godzilla and Johnny Quest of how you got into the industry. But I, was I think did by a radioactive director. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> but I think maybe a, a nice entry point for this episode and kind of getting us a little bit of that is I, I am kind of curious, especially the time when this project was happening. This was not that long after um, kind of the 20th anniversary uh I don't know if rediscovery is the right word because the fans were always there, but you know, internet and social media. And I know having listened to you talk about it, uh, talking about monster squad, that is when mm. it kind of resurfaced in the public awareness and your awareness, I was kind of curious, did that have any impact on your career when monster squad kind of, you know, suddenly, it was like, ah, oh, yes, there's this whole like subculture of people who love this movie. And maybe this is a roundabout way of I did want to ask about the attempt to remake Monster Squad around this same time. Which I had nothing to do with, by the way. Um, the answer to your question, did the resurgence of Monster Squad have any impact on my career? The answer is none whatsoever. <laughs> hmm. So there you go. <laughs> okay. <laughs> Wait, but the, the remake, uh, did they not have to talk to you about it at all? I guess I don't know if they felt like they needed your blessing or anything like that. Because that was going to be Platinum Dunes. Am I remembering that correctly? Yes. Yes. But what was interesting is, and this was my feeling about it at the time, was Rob Cohen was going to direct it. And if it weren't for Rob, there would be no Monster Squad. He was the one that shepherded it at, at uh, Taft Barish and TriStar back in the day when it was made. And he backed my play when Peter Hyams wanted to fire me after the first week. Rob went in and said, he's, he knows what he's doing. Just give him some time. 
So I love Rob and he was uh, he was there for me and the movie wouldn't exist without him. So when I heard that he was going to do it, it was like, well, he paid for the sandbox. So if he wants to play in it, he can play in it. Hmm. That's cool. Yeah, I, I was yeah. just thought, do you I mean, I guess if you weren't involved, you probably weren't privy to what their take was on it. But did you ever find out? Because this, you know, I guess to me, it seems like public knowledge, but I guess this now was a while ago for those who were maybe too young to really have experienced what I would call the Platinum Dunes remake kind of craze in the aughts right. uh, that started with Texas Chainsaw Massacre. And they did a lot. And then, you know, other companies realized like, oh, hey, let's just remake every single popular horror movie from the 70s and yeah. 80s. Uh, you know, sometimes it worked out, sometimes it didn't. To me, Monster Squad felt like a weird... It was hard for me to imagine what the Platinum Dunes toned remake of that would have been. Yeah. I guess what I'm trying to say. Yeah. That's a really good question. I think, and I'm, I may be misspeaking, but I think the gist I got was that the reason they, they ended up putting the kibosh on it, <clears throat> which is really funny when you think about Stranger Things, is that they were, that they really were concerned that it would be like what you're saying. It's, it's, you know, Michael Bay, it was going to be too extreme to have <laughs> kids in it. In other words, mm. putting kids in jeopardy for some reason was the deal breaker in a way, huh. which I find just hilarious. It, well, you know, and I can speak from personal experience, and I'm sure there are dozens upon dozens of people who had the same thing of tried to pitch movies. You know, those of us who grew up on Monster Squad and Goonies and kind of trying to be like, whatever happened to those movies and mm -hmm. pitching it and people just being like, oh, you can't make that this day and age. You know, being a kid's different. Parents don't let their kids go ride their bike around the neighborhood unsupervised. <laughs> it's too yeah. disturbing. You know, they said shit too many times in Goonies and Monster Squad. And then Stranger Things comes along and it's the most popular thing on the planet. It's <laughs> insane. So, Rem yeah. Remember Ruskies about the kids that find a, a Russian oh, man? Yeah. yeah, that was like another time, you know, which was so weird. But was oh, Monster Squad? I've never seen that, but I know of it. Yeah, it's like it, it came out that same era as Goonies and Monster Squad, but they find a Russian man. And um, but I mean, like what you guys did with Monster Squad with like Universal Monsters, do you know if they were going to do like a more updated like or are they going to do like I, I wish I had inside skinny for you guys. I really do. But it, it was kind of like, you know, hearing about, you know, the girl you were in love and she's marrying another guy. He's great. <laughs> yeah. Who, oh what's his gosh. name? <laughs> I don't know. I don't want to who I don't want to know about the, the thing, you know. It's a good way to put it. Was there, I know, you know, just being friends with Andre Gower. It's, now I'm having a hard time remembering how much of this is just things he wanted versus like ever was maybe in the mix. Was there ever any kind of talk again, once, you know, the, the anniversary DVDs and Blu-rays came out and the documentary, and there's always like right. that little spike of interest in things in the industry. Was there ever any kind of real talk of like a sequel where you get, the kids back which i realized unfortunately some have passed away so you can't really do that but yeah uh no but speaking from myself that's the approach i would want to take yeah um and you know i feel like that's the kind of suggestions fans would always give 
that over the years you're always kind of like, well, that's never going to happen. But I feel like we're living in that era now, though, mm-hmm. where they're doing sequels to like all this stuff and bringing back the old people. Uh, it's kind of just becoming <laughs> that's becoming its own little fad. Yeah. Well, really- if it becomes too much of a fad, then I completely take back what I just said. <laughs> <laughs> no, you want to get in there early uh, and then complain about all the knockoffs. Um, all right. Well, th- I, I wanted to get some always been curious about that. And I guess it kind of gives a little bit of a segue contextually into this time period. But before we get into cliffhanger, Steve, I know you dug up a little bit about just the ongoing process of this IP. And I don't know if this is something you're going to talk about, but I, I have some vague memory that even the original movie kind of started out, it was going to be some other project and then Stallone and Rennie Harlan jumped over to the you know because this was this was part of the post die hard craze where everything was die hard on a blank or die hard in a blank and this was very much sold to uh the audience members as die hard on a mountain yes you are correct josh yes we're going to start may 1989 a movie uh, a screenplay called gale force written by david uh Chappie, if I'm saying his last name correct, apologize to the audience again. I destroyed last names. <laughs> but in May 1989, this script went through a major bidding war, and the logline was a fugitive must defend a Florida town from contemporary pirates during a hurricane. So, yeah, Rennie Harlan was attached to direct, and Stallone was to star. So, pretty much Stallone during a hurricane fighting pirates. I mean, that sounded I would have loved to have seen that. I would have watched it, especially back then. Yep. And it was. uh, And Rennie Harlan probably would have directed. Yeah. (laughs) Yep. (laughs) Yep. Yeah. He was hired to direct with Stallone the Star, Corelco, who did Terminator 2, Basic Instinct. They bought the script for like a half a million dollars. They were on board. And if you know their films, it would have looked pretty freaking awesome, too. So, yeah, that's where we begin. May 1989, that script sells. And then the producer was uh, Daniel Melnick, and he felt that the script needed kind of a fresh direction. So he took the writer off the project and brought in Joe Estahouse. Joe Estahouse came in and he did like a, a, a version of it. And, a sexy pass, I can only assume. Was... Um, well, <laughs> yeah, he said the whole thing didn't work for him, work for him. And he said, um, so I said, I do an original screenplay with a hurricane in it. And his was more of a film noir mood piece. And then director Rennie Harlan said, you know, he got paid three million for it. And he said he loved Estahouse's script, but the writer's artsy love triangle wasn't the movie Corelco wanted to sell <laughs> to foreign distributors. So you are right. You know, Estahouse got paid like $500,000 and dropped out. Dude, that guy was Must killing be nice. It. I know. Yeah. And then um, so Corelco went to like, I saw one source say like 10 writers. There was a, a long list. And I think Dean Devlin's even on that list. If we ever get him on, got to ask him about that, <laughs> you know? And then during this time period, Stallone, you know, he was kind of, you know, 1989, he had uh, Tango and Cash and that prison movie Lockup. 1990, he Lock had Rocky. Lockup was 1989? Same year as Tango oh, and wow. Cash. Isn't that crazy? And then 1990 was Rocky Five. And then he was, you know, kind of trying to find comedies at this time. And he was a part and, you know, he signed on to that John Hughes comedy called Bartholomew, Bartholomew versus Neff, where he played like a former 
professional baseball player who lives next door to John Candy, who's like a corporate banker. Uh-huh. And they start having like a feud against each other. And it was going to be directed by uh, John Hughes. And that didn't happen. And he ended up doing that movie Oscar in 1991 instead. Mm-hmm. And then and then 1992, like his infamous stop or my mom will shoot. So a lot was riding on him, a cliffhanger, you know, after like that little bunch of films, you know, so 1990 his attempt to be a comedy star didn't quite pan out. In other yeah, words, I still haven't seen stop or my mom would shoot actually surprisingly. Um, anyway, I think that movie was written by the guy who wrote save the cat. Yes, because mm. he brings it up throughout save the cat a lot. Like the, the, the world's slowest car chase. And, you know, <laughs> it's mentioned throughout save the cat quite a bit. You know, you are correct. Which I mean, uh, and granted, I actually haven't read Save the Cat, so I'm not sure in which way, what ways he talks about that movie. I've just always thought it's somewhat funny that the person who's written the most famous how to write a good screenplay book wrote like Mom the past Stop or My yeah. Mom Will Shoot. <laughs> exactly. One of the most infamously yes. uh, hated <laughs> movies of the 90s. So I believe what he says in that book is that he sent the idea kind of centered around what if he had the world's slowest car chase? And so like (laughs) the mom is driving the car while the cop is next to her, like yelling at her. And And that's where we all know that as the writer, you really have no power of how the movie turns out. So that's true. (laughs) I'll I'll give him the credit of that. I don't know what his original script was like. I, I don't either, but I, yeah, still haven't seen it. Um, so 1991 Entertainment Weekly reported that, you know, Ray Harlan like rejected like all the drafts. And now we are in early 1991 and the latest writer turned in the draft that was pretty much the original script they bought. And so the idea had come full circle. And at this point they paid, <laughs> they spent like $1.75 million on scripts alone for this movie. And so in October 91, and so, yeah, around late September, early October 91, from what I can see, if it's true, uh, a crew had been hired to shoot the film. And two weeks before filming, they pulled the plug. And um, yeah, it was going to cost the budget was going to be $40 million. And the producer said pretty much uh, said, um, yeah, they were ready to roll. Um, it was pr- it was a prudent move for us not to go ahead on this based on the cost. You know, didn't think it was going to work out because it was like a crazy special effects. Well, water movies are expensive too. Yeah, so, but, but it was going to be forty million dollars. And well, so, wasn't cliffhanger even more than that. Wait, yes. I'm sorry. I, well, I won't, yeah, I'm we will get ahead. to. Yeah, and that's what's crazy. <laughs> yeah, and so they pushed. Now it was like announced in '91, like, "Hey, we're not doing Gale Force, but we're doing the script called Cliffhanger, which is pretty much r- almost ready to roll." And so then next year, November 1992, Variety is Variety comes out with an article saying Cliffhanger will ultimately cost 73 million dollars. Wow. And That's still gonna, a lot of money. This was yes. the early 90s. Well, Gale Force was going to cost 40. They bring in Cliffhanger for that was going to cost, they were thinking 47. And then it just jumps to 73 a year later. And then Corelco, don't forget, was going through some issues at the time. Yes. And come up on this podcast before. By yeah. the way, Gale Force to me, that sounds like it should be a romantic comedy where the title's a pun, <laughs> like it's a woman's name, Gale. But anyway. 
She's really annoying. Yeah. (laughs) She's a force to be reckoned with, played by (laughs) Melissa McCarthy. Insane. Uh, Yeah. So that's where we were in November 92. And then in and then May 1993, Cliffhanger comes out and it's the number one Memorial Day weekend hit, you know, made 20 million. It beat that Ted Danson, Whoopi Goldberg comedy made in America. Dave, I don't know how much of a feat that is, but <laughs> Dave, Super Mario Brothers, and Hot Shots Part Two, it beat all of those, and it ended up making like eighty-four million, I believe, domestically. I'm not sure what it made worldwide. And then uh, October second, nineteen ninety-four, there's an announcement that there's going to be a cliffhanger sequel called The Dam, and um, so I guess. Um, he was going to fight like terrorists at the Hoover Dam hmm. was one was one log line I left. And then there was another log line out there that the Hoover he had a he had a save the Hoover Dam from breaking. Um, so, yeah, so I, I, most likely it has to be like stopping terrorists at the dam, because that seems more of a. <laughs> and he was at the time Stallone was attached to do the John Woo killer remake, which is interesting. And what's weird is this same article from October 94. Underneath this uh, cliffhanger announcement, uh, Woody Harrelson was attached to a movie called Tears of the Sun that came out uh, like in 2003 with Bruce, with Willis. Bruce Willis. Oh, yeah. Huh. But he was going he was attached to Richard Donner's Assassins, where he was going to go opposite against Sean Connery. And it's interesting that Stallone ends up being in. Uh, Assassins a few within, years later with Antonio Banderas. Was he the yeah. other guy? Yeah, and so Stallone, so Sean Connery was originally in Stallone's role, and then Woody Harrelson <laughs> was originally uh, Banderas's role. That oh, sounds like Hollywood. a kind of a, sounds like a cool version though, with Sean Connery and Woody Harrelson. I don't know. Anyway, um, <laughs> yeah, so they were going to do that in 1994, and then not sure why it stopped, and that was going to be through TriStar, and then it, the project goes silent, from what I can see, until 2008. When Stallone, when it was just announced that Sloan was going to star in Cliffhanger 2, The Dam, bringing back that 1994 uh, version. And then in May 13th, 2009, at the Cannes Film Festival, Neil Moritz um, signed on to reboot Cliffhanger. And he had a quote saying, they just rebooted Star Trek and we're going to do the same with Cliffhanger. And he at the time was producing an $80 million version of Escape from New York that unfortunately never got seen. And the filming was going to begin in 2010. And so I think that brings us up to the date on, on your script, Fred. Yeah. So what, how did you get, how did you, uh, I was going to say tangled up, but that implies there was tangling. Um, But how did this project (laughs) first come across your plate? And like, where was it at in this like Stallone, the damn version well, I had a relationship with uh, Neil Moritz and Ori Marmer at uh, Original Film. We d- developed a couple of things uh, together um, and, and continued to after that. So um, I was kind of, I was over there quite a bit and uh, they brought it up. And um, at that point, they didn't mention anything about Sly. Um, they didn't mention anything about the dam or in fact any plot elements at all they just said you know what would you do 
if you were going to do um, the sequel to Cliffhanger. So I went away and the first thing that came to mind was there's a wonderful Western from the 70s uh, that Mark Rydell directed called The Cowboys, John Wayne. Uh, famous movie because Bruce Dern, spoiler alert, Bruce Dern kills John Wayne in the movie, he shoots him. But the premise is he's got to do a cattle drive. And I guess it's the Civil War and all of the able-bodied cowboys are off fighting the war. So, but he's got to move these, this, these cattle from point A to point B. And somebody suggests, well, you know, what about schoolboys from this small town? So he trains a bunch of, uh, you know, wet behind the ears kids, um, ranging in age from little to, you know, older teens, almost adults, to, to do the cow drive for them. And, and Bruce Dern is following them and one thing leads to another. But I thought that that was a cool way, like have, assuming that Sly was going to do the movie, have him sort of take these, my, my first thought was, was gangbangers. And the way you sell that is actually have them, you know, on prison furlough and, and just do the cowboys. But with Sly as John Wayne and a bunch of interesting young actors, because this was when, you know, the gang movies started to be made, you know, Mess to Society and, and all those were, were popular. And I was like, well, you know, let's make them, let's make them heroes. Let's take them out of prison and out of the hood and put them up on a mountain. So that was my first idea. Now, Canal Plus, I don't know if this is in your homework, Steve, but Canal Plus had a piece of it as well. And so I pitched this to Ori and, and Neil and they said, that sounds great. They said, we got to sell it to, to Canal Plus. And so their offices are in London. And I just happened to be going to a film festival in Scotland. And I love London. I like to you know, spend a day or two if I'm en route to someplace else just to walk around and, you know, pretend I'm James Bond. <laughs> and uh, so, so Canal Plus's office were there. So I said, well, guys, I'm going to Scotland in like a week or two and I'm stopping in London. Why don't I just stop and go to their office and pitch it to them? So that's what I did. I pitched it to them and, you know, they were really great, really receptive. They said, that sounds cool. And, uh, and I think there was more to it at that point. I said, you know, the villain, I think, you know, I want to do a heist movie. And it's kind of a heist. It's a Western. It's, and it's sort of in the spirit of the Stallone movie. And, uh, and my first thought was actually to kill Stallone, just like in the Rydell movie, um, because everything in my movies is stolen from something else. <laughs> um, and uh, so that's kind of where we were thinking. And then at some point, then they hired me and I started. And as I was breaking the story and trying to figure out the characters, um, they sort of, made it clear to me that, you know, don't, don't write it for slide because I, we don't think that he's going to do it. So I don't know where he was in his career or why he'd lost interest or if it was, I have no idea what, what that was about. So, uh, so I sort of wrote him out, but at any point could convert one of the two, uh, the two uh, leads who, uh, who aren't gangbangers or feds or whatever else or the villains in the, either of those guys could conceivably have been Stallone and then give him sort of a younger charge, like, uh, you know, Connery and Costner and the untouchable, something like that. And speaking of the Western influence, uh, you definitely wear that influence on your sleeve and the script. Cause uh, the, the new hero, once you had moved it away from Stallone's character is named Zane 
and it is mentioned in the script by him that his father was a fan of Western author Zane Gray. Um, I was also curious, just because I know from um, your other projects that you often love to uh, name characters after, uh, you know, not necessarily famous uh, artists, but, you know, artists you like. I was curious, were there other names in this script other oh, than there's Zane? tons. There's tons. Uh, so uh, Zane's last name is McKenna, which uh, I, I always wanted to use. And so there's a, there's a Western called McKenna's Gold with Gregory Peck. And I thought, well, that's what this movie is. <laughs> gold and let's call him McKenna. And then, and then Shane and I ended up uh, naming the Boyd Holbrook character in The Predator McKenna as well. <laughs> um, so who else? There's um, there's a character named Loden, and he's named after Desmond Loden, who wrote a great book called Bellman and True, which is an even better movie called Bellman and True, which is a great heist movie. It's one of my favorite heist movies. So everybody's sort of named after actors I like, or or you know writers I like, or you know. Well, I was going to ask because uh, I just did my own diehard knockoff and I have a character named Thorpe named after the author Roderick Thorpe who wrote the book mm -hmm. that Die Hard's based on. Yeah. Is that who your Thorpe was also exactly named after? Right. All right. <laughs> um, all right. Well, getting into the script a little bit, um, again, as we kind of talked about with uh, Johnny Quest, uh, Fred scripts are always very uh joyful to read um you know it, it's very clear why you and shane uh came up together and are friends and still work together i think you both have a similar kind of approach to uh the idea that script should be fun to read because they're usually kind of horrible and joyless to read because they're as we all know they're just blueprints it's not like writing a short story or a novel they're instructions for what should be happening during the production um, but your stuff's always real breezy. For the uh, record, we didn't make up, make that up. We're, we we just stole it from William Gold. Okay, William Golden, he's crazy though, man. We've talked about that before. I I learned how to write scripts the wrong way because his were the first scripts I ever saw, <laughs> and he doesn't do like exterior, interior. He just writes not cut to and then describes the shot like he's the director. Yeah. Uh, so I thought that's how you wrote a screenplay uh, when I was a kid. Um, but this begins with a bang. I love it where it's uh, we're seeing like a mountaintop and you're hearing all this wind and then, but you slowly realize that the picture of the mountain we're looking at is in fact a framed photo on the wall and we keep pulling back. And then you realize the wind we're hearing is from an open window and we're in a skyscraper and we're in there in the midst of a high rise heist uh, where we have three thieves who are breaking into this building and our, our hero, Zane, who's a cop, is down in a car with his partner, who's named Zane's partner. So while you're reading the script, you know, this guy's doomed. Uh, <laughs> you need to get a name. Um, and this whole sequence is super fun, where they bust in and they run up the stairs because they don't want to have the villains hear them coming up in the elevator. So they're all fucking super tired by the time they get up there. Um, and one of the robbers, the robbers are going from one building to another over kind of like a zip line. And one of them like betrays the other one and cuts the line. So there's like three bad guys who are falling out of this like open window, if I'm remembering correctly. And Zane's partner tries to save one of them. So he ends up kind of like supporting the weight 
of all three of these people dangling out the window and Zane has to hold on to him. And this was clearly your kind of uh, a spin on the, probably the most famous scene from the opening uh, from cliffhanger. I think in large part because they made fun of it in Ace Ventura too. I think that's how a lot of people remember it when Ace is trying to save a raccoon in the original cliffhanger. For those who don't remember the whole premise of the movie comes off the fact that Stallone is trying to save Michael Rooker's girlfriend who's dangling from a line uh, and he can't hold on to her and she falls and Michael Rooker like blames him for death. Um, Yeah. It's also like, a lot of people said after they saw that movie, I mean, I saw it theatrically. I like cliffhanger, but a lot of people were saying like the, the rest of the movie could not live up to that opening sequence. It was so good, you know, <laughs> and I was so curious how you were going to open the script. And it is a freak. It is a really cool, awesome sequence, too. It's like, oh, great. Oh, I guess the being scared of high, was heights. that Zane ends up holding his partners, holding these other guys. And, you know, can they hold on and ultimately they cannot and the thieves all die as does Zane's partner. We cut to four years later. He's haunted by it. Now we join him and he is climbing, but he's also taking anxiety pills because he's afraid of heights. Uh, and then so the one little tease we get, this takes place in the same universe as the original cliffhanger is we meet our female lead. Who's Kate, who is a helicopter pilot. And when she's at a ranger station, we see they have a framed like newspaper headline from 1993 about how park rescue team thwart heist. And you'll see like a picture of Stallone. And I'm forgetting the actress's name from Northern Exposure, who was the female. Yes. Um, and then, I mean, uh, Fred, do you want to describe any of uh, this like setup? Because I'm kind of curious, um, since this wasn't a proper sequel, it was, uh, again, you can just kind of do whatever you want, but sort of like what elements, if any, you were kind of trying to pluck from the first one. Let me rephrase it. I'm curious when you're writing this kind of a sequel that's meant to appeal to the fans of the first one, but also isn't carrying over the characters to what extent you were or weren't like thinking about like, well, what do I give these people for this kind of fresh take on a thing that they already liked, if that makes sense. Yeah, I think mostly it was, I think the, the thing that I took from the first cliffhanger was the tone of it. You know, it, it's slightly tweaked, slightly larger than life. Um, it's it's very much, you know, again, the diehard template. Uh, you, you want, you know, heroes who are sort of underdogs who you can relate to. Um, you want to hit the humor as often as possible. And then it's about set pieces and the cleverness of it. I mean, one of the reasons that Die Hard is so great is that it's genuinely clever. There's some real twists, real great great twists in that movie and in the sequels as well. And so I knew I wanted to do that. I, need, I, I needed set pieces. I needed, you know, action set pieces. I needed twists. Um, um, and then very early on, I love this idea of intercutting between our, our prison gangbangers who, who are, essentially, you know, being let loose out in the real world after having spent their time either in the hood being gangsters or in prison. And I thought that was kind of cool to teach them how to climb. I guess that's the real answer to your question is we had to do a lot of mountain climb. Yeah. <laughs> so, so I took classes and I found out what pitons are and all that stuff. And, uh, 
did as much of that as we could. Oh, wow. That was another, I always think of this as just from like, um, uh, you know, growing up on 80s action movies and like reading these scripts and reading this, like what kind of research would you do into like weapons and military vehicles? Because I always like just reading these scripts and I always just get the feeling that like all other screenwriters who write action movies have this like firm understanding of, you know, because I was Googling, like, what's this? What's this machine? Oh, it's a helicopter. Uh, it's <laughs> like, you mean? Yes, exactly. Oh, ass, what's this gun? Um, how much was that stuff that you just already kind of absorbed from years of on living this, versus looked it up? On this one, I looked it all up. And this was pre, uh, this was, I guess the internet was alive and well. I can't remember really where we were in that. Because now I just instantly Google it, but I'm sure I went to the library and I wanted to see what these things looked like and um, give it as much verisimilitude as we as as, as I could. Well, talk a little bit. This is this is jumping forward. This is something that gets revealed. I do want to get into more detail about it, but just sort of the the broad strokes of the plot, as we said, is this kind of they're not like teens, but there's a little bit of that kind of like scared straight vibe where it's like a bunch of young cons are getting released they're here to clear brush on the yeah. mountains which is a prevent, real thing you do yeah. service that's a real thing uh, to prevent forest fires and like that kind of thing with the idea that if they do a good job maybe their parts of their sentences can be commuted or reduced um right. and jasper thorpe he's the roderick thorpe reference we made earlier he's kind of our second male lead um who's in charge of the cons and he ends up enlisting zane to kind of help out. But meanwhile, our cons who are always seeing doing kind of mysterious stuff with the gold they steal, they're melting it down. We don't quite know what they're doing, um, why they're melting it down, in other words. Uh, and they take a train that's going through kind of decommissioned train route through the mountain to this mine and end up crossing paths with our heroes who take it upon themselves to stop it. The thing that I was jumping ahead though, because I wanted to just kind of a little bit if you if you can remember your thought press process on it that i thought was cool is because at one point the train gets pulled over and our heroes are looking in it and the train cars are all empty so you're kind of like oh maybe these are because one of them is posing there's the uh i like because i feel this is uh this is the kind of thing that if it had come out in 2010 or 11 would have been described as a throwback in a good way and i feel like this is this is the kind of action movie that it uh, really hits home for me as far as the archetypes involved. But, you know, you have the like sexy lady criminal who's got like a fake fed badge. And so she's posing as the fed when our guys kind of stop them, but they're like, Oh, the train cars are empty. And so you're like, well, what did happen with the gold? And then one of the other convicts who was like a hacker um, ends up deducing later that they must've, that they melted down all the gold and turned that into the like exterior of the train, yeah. Uh, which I thought was kind of fun. Do you remember at all about like where the ideas were coming from? Because I know when you when you're writing a heist movie, it's kind of like you want to hit the beats people like, but then at the end of the day, you're also like, what's a new thing I can do that no well, one's the, seen? The, the other piece of the puzzle, the main plot that you haven't mentioned uh, uh, of the the villain plot is what we call it, is that there's a. Uh, presumed terrorist bombing at the um, at the Denver Mint, which in fact is like the third biggest gold depository in, in, in the world. 
Oh, and, I, just to stop you for a sec, though, that this is a perfect example of the kind of things that I like that you put in the scripts. I made a note of this is that we get at one point interior gold depository government day. The description is the largest gold depository in the United States is the Federal Reserve Bank in Manhattan. The second is Fort Knox, Kentucky. This is the third. It's just fun to read. And and interestingly, both of the other two have have had heists pulled on them. Um, Fort Knox, obviously Goldfinger. And uh, the New York Gold Depository is the crux Die of Hard the plot three, of, right? of, of Die Hard with a Vengeance. Yeah. Yeah. Um, which may have, what year was Die Hard with a Vengeance? Uh, 95, was it? I'm taking a guess. Well, let me see. Anyway, I'm sure that, yeah. that, I'm sure that, that was uh, an, an influence on me because I like the movie quite a bit. And I love the moment where where Jeremy Irons is looking down from a building and he's seeing all the cops, you know, backing away from this building because they think something bad's going to happen. And he said, they bought it. I said, what you want to do is you want to set up a plot that seems to be going one way and then one way, and then you twist and you reveal, Oh no, that's not what was happening at all. So it's a fake terrorist bombing. It's actually a cover as a diversion for them to steal gold out of the vaults at, uh, at the Denver Mint by cutting a hole in the floor and dropping the gold actually literally into the sewer and then having these, these kind of, uh, what would you call them? They're like dune buggies, like military dune buggies and putting the gold into those and then taking them out of the sewer. And then they want to take it up, up the hill into the mountain to rendezvous with this evil Middle Eastern terrorist who's going to use it for yeah, various purposes. And the implication is, is that he's going to be making a tax on like uh, nuclear power plants and that kind of thing in the country. And there's some element of like currency getting destroyed. And just, I think part of why they want all this gold, right? It's, Am I remembering that correctly? It's torn from today's screaming headlines. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I always get depressed when you have to read one of your scripts because I'm going to know like, oh man, I wish this got made. Because when I was reading that little high sequence, because I love Die Hard 3, and I love that whole high sequence. And I, and when I was reading all the way, you know, it was all described and I could totally see it in my head. And I was like, man, I wish I could have seen this because it reminded me totally of Die Hard 3. And it also reminded me of this other movie I loved from the 80s. It's not like it. I thought it was going in that direction and it's totally didn't. It was a movie called Shoot to Kill. Oh, yeah. And I, yeah. And I was like, oh, man, this is like Shoot to Kill meets Die Hard 3. And it, I, I was like all over the script. And man, I, yeah, I wish we could have seen that heist. It was really well written. But well, again, whole... the, fun part is, the fun part is concocting a, 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 what, what we used to call a bitchin' heist, because it's bitchin'. <laughs> it, the fun part is, is concocting the heist and then revealing that, that, that they're pulling one over on the feds and the cops and everybody else. So it's not enough to just pull it off. It also, there, there also has to be a clever diversion behind it. Well, and you know, you joked earlier that you're just stealing stuff uh, from other movies, but to your credit, that's part of it's, it's fun when you take uh, an element from one movie, especially a whole different genre of movie and kind of splice it in mm -hmm. to something else. Cause this has this whole dirty dozen element, but Very it's not much. hardened, you know, adults in the war it's a, right. a bunch of like older teens and young 20 somethings doing community service but it still has that kind of like vibe and their relationship with others some of them are you know 
better and worse people than each other. Yep. Yep. Uh, oh, there's definitely a dirty dozen element to it. Definitely. It's funny. I had not even thought about, I, I saw the Cowboys, the John Wayne movie for the first time during lockdown last year or the year before. It's hard to keep track of anything <laughs> that happened mm-hmm. during COVID. Uh, that was one of those movies where I knew it existed, but for whatever reason, I, I was unaware that it was good. Yeah. Uh, so it really blew my mind how great the movie was. I highly recommend uh, people check that out. Great, um, great John Williams score. Oh yeah, you're right. Uh, but I, that hadn't even occurred to me that influence on this, but now I, now I totally see it. Um, and I mean, there's, you know, it, this is the kind of movie where it's hard to really talk about the plot because the plot, like the first cliffhanger, it's very straightforward and it's just kind of the characters coming together and dealing with each other on a mountain, but there's mm-hmm. a lot of really fun uh, set pieces. Another one I liked is where Kate, the helicopter pilot kind of gets involved and she lands her helicopter because there's a civilian family who's like RV is trapped kind of on the train tracks. And this is when we first kind of get cut to our villains on the train entering the mountain uh, and Angelique. And how, how do you say this villain's name? Geitzig. Geitzig. Uh, I wasn't quite sure about that. It's G-E-I-Z. I don't know why I made him German. I don't know why. <laughs> uh, I, thought it was, the... I thought it was cool to have a German. Well, first of all, Goldfinger was, was German. But I thought it'd be cool to have a German villain but ultimately what he's doing is he's bringing gold to a, to, you know, a Middle Eastern terrorist. It's just, uh, it works. I mean, you know, maybe it's because I just like German villains again, (laughs) the eras we grew up in, but um, there's kind of this great old bit where, you know, she wants him to not plow into this RV of, (laughs) of innocent people. And she's like, we said no civilian casualties. And I loved his response of like, now, now you can't make an omelet without occasionally killing a few innocent bystanders and just like plows into the RV. And he also shoots at Kate's chopper, which pisses her off. So she gets another chopper to get involved. Um, And Steve, feel free to jump in with anything else. If I'm missing things, uh, the next set piece I really liked is when we finally get our like criminals our, our heroes, even though they're criminals, I'll say our heroes because the convicts ultimately are, are good guys. So our heroes finally are interacting with the bad guys and they've stopped the train. That's what I talked about where the bad guys are pretending that they're just feds and that they're actually involved with this. Uh, the, the, the terrorist bomb situation you mentioned back in Denver, but mm-hmm. on the good guys side, you know, like we got to, it's all top secret stuff we're doing and our heroes are kind of realizing they're full of shit and some of the like uh, good guy convicts take it upon themselves to get involved. When there's a character I liked named Death Wish uh, and they call him that. Uh, and this is, you know, one of those like, oh, we're learning more about uh, the, these hoodlum kids. Uh, some of them have a heart of gold is that a kid who's in the type of gang where, you know, you, they beat you in and you can't get out. If you want out, they're going to kill you. But he like promised his grandma that he'd get out. So the idea is that once he gets out of prison, if I'm remembering this correctly, he's just going to quit, even though he knows they might kill him. And that's why they call him Death Wish. Uh, And he has a cool scene where he's facing off against Geitzik. I think I've already Mm -hmm. forgotten how to say it. And Geitzik shoots him in the gut like multiple times. It's kind of a fucked up scene. And Death Wish keeps walking towards him. And I also like that you described the first shot as blam the loudest gunshot in the movie hits death wish in the gut. Uh, and I like that. Cause I'm like, I, I kind of understand what that means. This is of all the gunshots that are fired in the movie. This is the one that should 
have kind of the biggest impact on the audience. Um, yeah, but it's also the whole thing. Yeah, it's yeah, it's powerful because the Death Wish character and the lead character are kind of first against each other, and then throughout, you know, what you know, what you do great is they slowly become friends. They share like that Slim Jim scene together, which I love, and then yeah, <laughs> it's like, and they just totally bond, and you're like, oh, this is awesome. How are they? You know, and I'm expecting him to be one of the guys that's going to kick ass in the movie, and then when you just take them out here it is heartbreaking you're like oh man i just grown to like this guy yeah. i really dug that i'm also a sucker for i don't know why this this like makes me think of like uh, uh what's the most southern comfort with powers booth of all mm-hmm. the the guys out in the swamp or that kind of i don't know if i should say underappreciated i haven't seen it in so long so it might not even be good but don coscarelli's survival quest which is about like kind of two feuding uh like groups of people being led by two very different, you know, uh, tour guides out in the woods and some stuff happens. But, you know, just this, this kind of like uh, people out in nature having to come together. Uh, I have a side. Yeah, it's a bonding. It's kind of a bonding ritual that, that becomes much more dangerous and uh, than they could ever have imagined. Uh, and, you know, the, as you kind of talk about what you kind of tried to pull from the first movie. And I think you get very right is sort of, you're perfectly walking that line between like, you know, a legitimate serious action movie, but also that just very intentional fun kind of like cheese ball. Mm-hmm. Uh, uh, I'll say the Rennie Harlan vibe. And I say that as someone who loves, especially Rennie Harlan's like, first phase of his career. I think he'd made Die Hard 2, you know, just these great, very knowingly silly action movies. Mm-hmm. Um, but a perfect example of that is happens multiple times in the script where Guy Ziggs people, untrustworthy people he's working with, try to backstab him and have like a mutiny. Uh, and one guy tries to have a mutiny. Uh, <laughs> and while he's doing this, Guy Ziggs says, it's like, uh, we discussed this, the possibility that one or more of us might become greedy, disgruntled. And I told Mr. Krakauer quite specifically that if that happens, uh, and then we cut to blocking, as he speaks, we see Krakauer looming directly behind Loudon, gripping the handle of his bat firmly. Back to guys. It's like, if this happens, he should use extreme stealth in sneaking up behind <laughs> this malcontent. And, and then Krakauer just bashes him in the back of the head. And I'm like, ah, that would that, that have been great. No, totally. That's my kind of action movie moment. Krakauer, by the way, was named after that great that the author of that famous mountain climbing book. I can't remember the title of it, but it was. A oh, I don't know that one. It was a bestseller and uh, it's a big deal. Oh wait, so was there any cast like in mind, or at least discussed while we were like talking about these characters by any chance? Here's the weird part. Um, like I say, uh, I had a really good relationship with with. Uh, Ori Marmer in particular and Neil as well. And they just sort of let me go to town. So uh, I, I, what I was doing was in my, if I had to do, to do over again, I don't know that I would have written that many characters. I don't think I've ever written anything on my own that had that number of characters. But again, it, the idea was to sort of have somebody that everyone could invest in. I guess, you know, they're all different races. They're all different sizes and attitudes. And I just thought, well, you know, it's, you know, it's the rag, t- it's what you said, Josh, is the, is the dirty dozen. It's this ragtag team. Um, uh, 
but I never, I never, you know, sat down with the, the guys and, you know, we all said, you know, we don't need this character or, you know, what about getting rid of this person or we need another character who does this. They really let me do what I wanted to do. So. Well, you'd said you'd uh, worked with Moritz. Uh, You'd been kind of had an ongoing relationship with him. I guess I should also note for listeners uh, as do I, uh, Neil produces the Sonic the Hedgehog movies. Uh, and I also did another movie with him that sadly might not get made. Uh, I think it's still too early to mention it, but possibly that'll be a future episode <laughs> of our own podcast. Um, but uh, how far back did you guys go? Like, what kind of years are we talking about that you guys first started collaborating? You know, I, there was a project that I did that I, that I wrote in... 2001 ish and it's the one thing that i've done in my career that just wouldn't seem to die um i was attached to direct it i developed it with uh lightstorm for a, for quite a while for a couple of years can you um, give any details on that or is that still kind of in the mix yeah I prefer not because yeah, yeah, that's fine. a whole bunch of other movies and TV shows that are in the same ballpark have happened since I wrote it. And to me has sort of queered the deal, but enough time passes and maybe it'll be fresh again. Mm-hmm. Um, so anyway, so I did that with them and uh, we ended up selling it to uh, selling it to sci-fi and uh, Neil Marshall was aboard to direct it as a pilot. And we were going to do it as a series for sci-fi. Um, but, but it started at, at, with Neil and, and Ori and, uh, and my manager had a good relationship with them too. So we would just, we would have meetings and lunches and, and, you know, and, and this one came across my desk. It was kind of just, it just fell out of the sky and it was really great. Should also say I can never pass up a moment to plug our own show. Uh, people should also <laughs> go back and listen to our episode with Neil Marshall where he talked about his unmade King Arthur movie, uh, among other things. Um, but sorry, wait, I guess just looping back. And then that was, that was kind of how you got involved with Moritz and you guys just worked on things over the years. Yep. And, and so the script we have is dated May 2010. Uh, is that really when things started? Uh, this is supposed, supposedly a second draft, but you know, you never really know if things are labeled appropriately. Well, the one that I found was from February. So if yours is May, then that means I must have done some revisions to it. Um, But uh, I don't recall what those would be. Hmm. I mean, the whole thing is kind of a blur. The The things that don't get made, I think there's a part of me that, emotionally just sort of puts it in a closet. Um, And this one, I don't know how, I I don't, it's not like they ever said, you know, we can't cast this or it's too expensive or we're having trouble with Canals Plus. I mean, there was never kind of any kind of explanation. It just sort of died on the vine. And I don't know why that was, but uh, you know, I remained, you know, friends with them and continue to work with them. So it's just one of those things. Yeah, I'd like, yeah, now that you're talking about the Western, I could totally see the train angle. And it bums me out, man, because I'm, I, 
I'm dying to see you get a train in the movie between this and the predator. When I read that script and that train sequence, which I love, man, <laughs> it kills me. Trains what? are good because they're just the, the, these behemoths that just go and go and go, and you got to get out of their way and you got to climb on them. And, you know, there's something very cinematic about a train. Do you have a favorite train movie? Runaway Train is pretty great, but it's not something that, you know, it's not in my, in my, my list of, you know, favorite concepts and for movies. Ever. Yeah. But um, if, if another one comes to mind, I'll, I'll mention. I did want to cap off the conversation about the script uh, specifically uh, as far as the Western influence is that it does end with Zane killing Geitzig by slitting his throat with a boot spur. Well, yeah, Geitzig <laughs> fancies himself a cowboy mm-hmm. and uh, has the, has that one one spur on his boot, and uh, Zane takes uh, advantage of that uh, <laughs> that spur to kill the bad guy with it. Well, then it has the the great exchange death exchange, uh, since again, as I've noted, Zane has talked about how his dad named him after Zane Gray. He's like, you know, my dad loved westerns you know what his favorite was the searchers you know what john wayne says at the end of that movie geizik's listening uh and says he doesn't say anything he just goes away and then, and then he jumps him out, him out of the helicopter, helicopter. <laughs> yeah. uh, oh, that was good great. stuff <laughs> yeah but I, I like that you had a lot of characters because you kind of gave something i love about the decade of horror films josh and i grew up with like those little mini bosses man i love how you set up all these guys all these little mini bosses you get to see get killed and then the uh the terrorist then comes in in the third act you're like oh man i got it's bonus it's like this there's yeah the script is like action-packed that's what kind of bummed me out about it i was like wow this movie has lots of excitement in it just be just between the hazards they're finding on the mountain and then with the action set pieces it's like back and forth you know i personally like sorry not to cut you off but just i I personally like movies with what one might describe as too many characters um like uh i a movie that i can't believe i had not seen before um, I think because I always thought it was a Giallo movie, but I just saw the James Brolin movie, Night of the Juggler. Oh, yeah. Which is was it the New terrible, Beverly? Yeah, it's New Beverly. Terrible title. Amazing movie. And that is a movie. It's my favorite era of New York movies, mm-hmm. the kind of 70s through early 80s. Sleazy, taking, of, yeah. taking of Pelham 123 is my favorite example of that. But it's an era where it felt like extras didn't cost anything. So mm-hmm. every scene, it just has all these characters. And there'll be a guy or a woman who will say like one thing. And it's like the funniest, most memorable line in the whole movie. And they didn't even give it to one of the principal characters. Mm-hmm. And it just it's this world that feels very lived in. And, you know, one could say something like the Monster Squad. I don't know if this was ever a conversation you had on it, but you could be like, does it need to be this many kids? Can't you lose two? Couldn't you tell the same story with two less kids? And you're like, Mm -hmm. I mean, I guess, but that's how many kids I want. I mean, I feel the same thing about this. Um, And having just rewatched like Con Air, which is another preposterous convict (laughs) action movie. And that's another movie where it's just like, you don't need all these characters, but that's it's a it's a dumb movie, but it's very fun. And what is fun about it is just watching all these amazing actors. They convinced to be in this insane yeah. movie. Uh, and if you take that away, there's not much left. Uh, sometimes just having all these great characters bouncing off each other is like what 
makes a movie. It's this one. It's people on a mountain doing action yeah. sequences. That's what would have been fun about it is a thinking of, you know, cause it's like the movie that I like to imagine is the movie that 10, 15 years later you, you watch it and you're like, Oh man, it's that guy when he was just mm-hmm. starting out, you yeah. know, uh, of all the young people they could have stunt casted here. Yeah. I mean, what was, what was disappointing for me is that the next step is, which is always the, the fun part is you find actors to play these parts and then they bring life to them and adjust them for, to the, for, for their own tastes. And that's when they really come to life. Um, but, but I felt, you know, cause I just looked at this again to, for, for this and I hadn't literally hadn't looked at it in 20 years and oh no, it's 10 years, isn't it? So mm-hmm. 10 years since I even, since but again, we went through COVID. I feel like that added an extra <laughs> that added five to six years. years on our lives. And, and I started it and I was like, oh yeah. And uh, yeah, good job, Decker. We think it's the, the up in the Rockies, <laughs> but it's actually a picture. And then there, there's the thieves. And, and it just, I was like, yeah. And it really, I think got better as it went. And part of that is again, from a screenwriting standpoint, trying to come up with stuff that was, that was, that, w- that would surprise you, you know, like the feds are, those feds turn out to be wrong. And that guy we think is a good guy, but he turns out to be a bad guy. And there's a lot of them. And there's a lot of little, you know, moments of banter and, and, and one lines and stuff like that. And, and at the end of the day, and there's, and I was concerned that there wasn't enough action um, but there's, it's just, it's got set piece after set piece. I mean, <laughs> yeah. Mm-hmm. I just, I, I wish I knew I should probably call or like, dude, what happened with that movie? Because it really does sort of deliver. Um, it would take a really talented director because there are a lot of balls in the air between the character work and the action stuff. And it, it's, it's very ambitious, but I liked it more than I thought I would. That's good. Uh, when you write, do you, uh, I only ask this because this is what me and my writing partner do. And I, I possibly we do it because there's two of us and we need to find an easy way to get on the same page about how to write characters is we tend to like kind of uh, fantasy cast it. Sure. Of just so you have kind of an idea of like, oh, it's, it's the kind of character this person would play. Like, do you tend to do that when you write at all? I do, but I didn't with this one at all. Oh, that's interesting. Yeah, I can't tell you a single actor that I thought about for this movie, mm. which is strange for me. And Steve, have you did you dig up anything of what? Because you know they still haven't made they haven't rebooted Cliffhanger, so it's not like they did something else instead of this. Um, but I also feel like this is the kind of property that every so often like they semi-announced that oh, they're trying to do, they got this writer on it. Did you find anything more, Steve? Yeah. And yeah. And to the audience, like usually when I do these episodes, I'm usually at the library. I usually can go balls deep researching, which I love, but during COVID it's been difficult and I can only use certain means. And so <laughs> I tried to find as much as I could. And so that's why, you know, I, I wish I could have found more, but, you know, my hands were kind of tied. I even ventured out to the library, hoping it was open and it was closed. I was so bummed. I miss being there. 
<laughs> just cool library. Steve I, 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 it's uh, my favorite. It's my favorite place because I always find projects I never knew about existed while I'm researching this stuff, and that's my favorite part. I'm like, wait, what? What is this? But anyway, <laughs> uh, yeah. A couple of years later, in May 2014, a gentleman named Joe Gazim was set to write um, a reboot. Joe Gazim, G A Z Z A M, and I. Um. That just sure. sounds like a joke name. <laughs> yeah, did I? Well, I, plus the way I destroy names. Maybe we should. Maybe I should look him up really quick. Uh, yeah, he. Uh, Deadline announced that he's climbing toward a cliffhanger re- reboot. <laughs> That's good headline. Yeah, there you go. <laughs> and then that was. And then the following year, May 2015. I'm guessing these are like can announcements because they're in May. Uh, on Instagram, like Stallone, like did like an just kind of put out on Instagram, like you know. This is one movie I'd love to do a sequel to when he kind of did like has like a photo from behind the scenes of Cliffhanger, you know, and he said, um, you know, I would love to do a sequel to Cliffhanger. This put, you know, which puts in doubt whether, and then some someone wrote, you know, this puts in doubt whether the reboot will actually happen. And then May 2019, like four years later, it was announced that there's going to be a female fronted Cliffhanger reboot. And it's uh, going to be written by Sasha Penn, who wrote Creed 2. And it's going to be directed by the woman who did uh, A Girl Walks Home at Night, Anna Lily. Oh, Ar- I love that movie. Uh, how do I say your last name? Armapur. Armapur, I think. And she did The Bad Batch. And then Jason Momoa was in talks to, be, to do a cameo as in it. And... It's when I looked her up on IMDb, it's still there as like, you know, announced. We're not sure if it's still happening yet, but that's the last I could find of this project. Now it was 2019. Was that? Yeah. And then we hit COVID. So maybe it's still on the, uh, you know, knows what what COVID does to productions. I looked at, I'm going to guess that guy's name is pronounced Joe Gazam, but I don't know. There you go. Gazam. Uh, I don't know. I'll, uh, I'll destroy a name. Uh, and he wrote for the Magnum PI, the new Magnum PI TV show. Oh, right on. Yeah. Well, I, that, I feel like they could still make this script. Oh, uh, hell yeah. Even if it's not even a cliffhanger sequel, dude, it's its own, like it's a well, it, it an kind of, action movie. It it's, doesn't really have any, it, I mean, it really doesn't have any strings attached to cliffhanger is the truth. No, yeah. I mean, you know, one would compare it to it, but uh, yeah. there's no no carryover. And also it's been so long now. Um, and it is funny because it's like Cliffhanger very much was a diehard knockoff when mm-hmm. this, even though it shares a lot of elements, I, I would not really describe it as diehard-esque. It doesn't have that uh, kind of trapped together vibe. Um, Because if anything, the the convicts are kind of seeking out the bad guys. It is more of a a dirty dozen style. But I think in in plot and tone and some of the character work, I think, you know, it's very much inspired by by Die Hard, which I think is, you know, one of the greats of all time. Yeah. Uh, Oh, I didn't realize that that uh, John Lithgow was his character was originally supposed to be played by Christopher Walken in, in mm. Cliffhanger. I thought that would have been interesting. I mean, that was a weird John Lithgow has had a strange <laughs> up and down career because he was a dramatic actor uh, who then wanted 
to switch things up and do comedies. And then he felt like he was getting too known from comedies. So well, he, he wanted to switch it up. Yeah. And switch it up and do dramatic. I feel like he's kind of gone back and forth a couple of times because he became kind of increasingly more famous each time <laughs> for different things. You know, he's like, I don't want to be the dad from Harry and the Harry Hendersons. And Henderson. I'm going to be the bad guy in Ricochet and Cliffhanger. And he's like, well, I don't Ricochet. like that people keep thinking of me as a bad guy. I'm going to do Third Rock from the Sun. And now he's, <laughs> he's just like, oh, but people just think of me as the guy from Third Rock from the Sun. And I mean, now he's just kind of a institution unto himself. But yeah, and it's also like the I think he did Cliffhanger the year after Raising Cane. So he kind of stayed in that crazy character. That you day. know, I'm just going to stay in this crazy character and bring it to Stallone. Because, you know, how else do you face off against Stallone? Yeah, because I was re- remember that movie Crusade that was supposed to come out. Like the villain, like Stallone's main baddie in that was uh, Shooter McGavin from Happy Gilmore. What's his name? Oh, uh, um, uh, Christopher McDonald. Yeah, oh, Chris McDonald. Yeah. Yeah. It would have been like it was like what a weird adversary to have in a medieval movie to fight Schwarzenegger. You know, that guy out that of all the he, people. He feels he's, very he's, modern to me. I mean, I guess. Yeah. So does Schwarzenegger, but but uh, but oh, so I have a quick question for you. When I was looking up this, I stumbled across. Um, was it true you and Shane Black were attached to do like a Remo Williams remake? Is that uh, well, Shane is a huge Destroyer fan, and he made a deal years ago. I think I think it was with um, Sony. To Can you give a little a background, I guess, just for the listener on that property? Because like I really only know it from the unsuccessful Fred Ward movie <laughs> right. in the 80s, which has Nemo Williams' kind of The Adventure yeah. Begins. I, I do too. I'm not going to lie. I've seen here. It's a long series of novels, uh, paper paperbacks. You know, you know, bu- bus station paperbacks we would call them. And there's, I think, over a hundred because several oh, wow. writers. Several writers. Oh, okay, it's one of those. Gone, but um, but Shane was always a big fan, particularly of the first batch, the first set. One of the writers was a guy named Warren Murphy, and Shane was such a fan that he reached out to him to help write uh, *Lethal Weapon* two. So when you see Warren, you know, story by Shane Black and Warren Murphy, Warren Murphy is the creator of *The Destroyer*, and uh, he. he Shane always loved this character and wanted to make a movie of it. And he made this deal. And uh, there's a guy named lovely guy named James Mullaney, who is sort of inherited the job of writing the new Remo Williams destroyer novel. So he's written a whole bunch of them and Shane really liked James's destroyer novel. So he asked him to collaborate with him. And then there was just a point where I had just finished something and was available. And they asked me to come in and, the three of us banged it around for a little while. Oh, okay. Right on. So there you go. I was always curious, like, why didn't that get a sequel? It was like the, the adventure begins. I loved the movie when I was a well, kid. I don't think it made money. <laughs> is that what it was? The adventure yeah. didn't really begin. Is yeah. What <laughs> yeah, I guess it had a great score. And, you know, it felt, I mean, there's things about it, you know, today that, you know, I guess I shouldn't say how, you know, the casting well, of an Asian Joel character. Joel Gray playing and. Yeah, Asian guy. <laughs> but I haven't seen it in a long time. But uh, but I always wondered when I was a kid, I loved it. And I always used to wonder why there wasn't more of those films. But, you know, but that's, I mean, that's I sometimes that's, hubris. You know, I think you guys know this and you can speak to it. I think mean, I think sometimes hubris kills you when you try too hard to create an event without 
you know, you can't call it an event. You just do it and hope that people come. And so the whole notion of starting, you know, this action hero and they had, you know, the director of a couple of James Bond movies, Guy Hamilton, and it was like, this is going to be the next big thing. And it's always dangerous to do that because if you fail, then you just look, you know, you have egg on your face. That's what I thought when they did that new mummy movie with Tom Cruise. And I knew that the whole idea and they had been so much publicity about how they're creating this. It's going to be the monsters, but the Avengers, Mm -hmm. you know, but it was the moment when I saw the movie and the universal globe spun around and it said dark universe on it. I was just like, you guys just jinxed yourself. (laughs) Like you did the Babe Ruth pointing to where you're going to hit the home run. Uh, but you're not Babe Ruth, unfortunately. So, yeah, that movie is insane. That's like something we would talk on the show that I can't believe, you know, like. Some no, of it scenes. did seem like that would have been a movie that didn't get made. And yeah. we'd be like, oh, that's crazy that they attempted that. I oh, mean, yeah. at some point, I, I we got to figure out how to get the scripts for all the other movies they already had in the pipeline. That all got canceled. Dark Universe. Tank. Uh, yeah. Like Invisible Man. I think there, there's a building on the Universal lot last time I was there, which is right next to Amblin. And I saw a bunch of parking spots with this logo, Dark Universe. And I think it was the Dark Universe building. So everybody in that building is trying to figure out how to do what we did in 1987 and Universal didn't care. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, I brought Monster Squad to Universal because I wanted to use the monster designs, the Jack Pierce designs, and uh, you know would have been great to open with the with the little globe turning, and we were very excited, like we're going to bring these monsters back. They couldn't care less. They were like, well, you know, we like to put Frankenstein on coffee mugs at the tour gift shop, but other than that, this is means nothing to us. I've always. It's crazy to me, but I mean, the one good thing that came out of whoever was in charge at that point in time and their weird mindset, the one good thing that came out of that was who framed Roger Rabbit, because if Warner Brothers had valued their IP in any way, like if the tables had been flipped, Disney would never have let Warner Brothers use all the Disney characters in a movie they were making. But Warner Brothers was just like, yeah, whatever. Uh, and the movie was a huge hit and that's when they were like oh maybe people still like bugs bunny and these characters and well, all the, the pedigree of, of, of steven spielberg and robert zemeckis helped oh sure sure but i just mean that like <laughs> they weren't doing anything they were just they were repackaging the old cartoons for my generation on saturday mornings and there would never have been a space jam if it wasn't for who framed roger rabbit that was kind of what showed them oh like people will come out for these beloved old characters. And it's just funny that it's just funny to me that they, you know, cause it's not like monster squad. You weren't asking for like $80 million or something that they would have been like, Hey, yeah, this is a fun way to inject some life. And it, cause it did inject life. And, you know, as a kid watching this movie, I guess that's the wonderful thing about the characters all being in the public domain. I didn't really think about the fact that this was a different studio than the one who made the like old black and white versions. I was just like, oh, yay, the monsters. Mm-hmm. I, I did, too. Same thing with me. And Creature from the Black Lagoon was always my favorite. And, and I loved the Mercury. And then late years later, I found out that Steve Wang sculpted that thing. And he's freaking yes, he did did. Such a phenomenal job. Such an underrated director also. Steve, 
Yeah, he Giver too, which I freaking love. And uh, <laughs> I always bring it up. Drive. That's why I love you, Steve. Only, you got to see Drive. Only you would be praising the Giver too. <laughs> no, 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 yeah, but it's like it's like a violent power. It's like the violent Power Rangers you want. And um, yeah, and he did this movie called Drive with Mark, Mark Dukakis, who's like my favorite actor. And then Wait, he's like, he, he's like the one. Like he, Steve Wang brought wire work to the United States because I was watching some documentary and they're like, oh, the Matrix brought wire work to action. I was like, no, man, Steve Wang was in a freaking hangar in Burbank having Guyver fight monsters on wires in like 1994. Whoever was... wrote that article wasn't yeah. <laughs> Guyver 2. Wait, doesn't the Guyver 2 star some famous a... screenwriter? I, I, I'm not sure. If it's okay, I thought you knew that I, I I'm forgetting his name. The guy who does the voice of solid snake in all the metal gear movies. I'm intrigued. And he, and he also wrote the like X-Men movies. I feel like he oh, may really he's a star in that. I'm not sure. He, it's a different star than the first uh, Giver. First Giver is pretty bad shit. <laughs> well, that's that was... got all this uh, screaming mad George mm-hmm. stuff in the first Giver. I think they co-directed Scream Mad George and Steve Wang. Totally different movie. The second yes, one's more serious. David Hayter. Is He's the a star? star of Giver 2. Oh, no uh, way. No way. But uh oh yeah, by the way, David. Jake's Jake Speed's another one of those movies I thought was gonna be like a, some type of freaking 80s you know, action guy. And that just, that ended quick to go back to that. Sorry. We're all over the place now. <laughs> then you, look at Fast, you look at the back to, to Neil Moritz, you look at the Fast and the Furious and how that just managed to keep sort of building on, you know, its meager beginnings and, uh, and looking at the, at back to cliffhangers, looking at this script uh, in, in a strange way. I don't know if I was, trying to do this but it's got a little bit of that crazy fast and the fury the, the the later the more recent ones where it's all about coming up with a gag a stunt gag that you know mm-hmm. is so ridiculous dropping cars out of airplanes and having them land on other airplanes i mean it's just it's it's like a something a five-year-old would draw for you know <laughs> the best comic book of all time oh um, definitely i think i mean i don't quite remember what year fast five came out which is i feel the the movie that kind of redefined mm-hmm. uh, what the franchise was mm-hmm. uh, and that just kind of perfect gonzo tone. I don't know how else to describe it. Um, and yours is a little bit more grounded than some of those get because at least follows kind of the rules of physics and people, <laughs> human, humans can't just like fly into things at you know, 80 miles an hour and then just get up and, dust themselves off there's consequences but uh, as far as like the group vibe and everyone like razzing each other it very much has that yeah uh, fast and the furious franchise vibe i mean it would have been a great maritz movie that's why i kind of feel like you should still do it mm-hmm. agreed <laughs> oh wait i forgot my other just minor script details just looking over my notes we're meeting the convicts i like as you're kind of going through and describing them uh, and there's a characters, of course, like Dirty Dozen kind of like reading off uh, what they did 
uh, to get arrested. But in the script, you introduce two characters, Buck and Tuck. And then in the blocking, you just note, they won't be around much longer. So don't kill yourself remembering them. Uh, <laughs> and then they steal one of the guards guns and like try to, you know, run away and get like brought back to prison. Sent back to prison. <laughs> Maybe that's when I realized there was too many characters. I just <laughs> get rid of these two guys right now. Before like, this is there. too much for the reader to remember. <laughs> uh, well, uh, since we've been spiraling off and talking about Guyver sequels, which are <laughs> movies that none of us were involved in, uh, this is maybe a perfect time to close things out. Uh, thank you so much to Fred for joining us. Great to uh, see you guys. It, it's always weird you. with our podcast because I want to say, like, uh, I hope to have you back soon. But at the same time, <laughs> we always like to say to people on this, uh, we hope we don't have you back too many times. Um, yeah. Am, am I? Who, who's the uh, who, who has the ring? Who has the brass ring? for? The... Well, but you've also been on episodes unrelated to your own project. Oh, so okay. I think that puts okay. you over the edge, but that's cheating a little bit because uh, okay. you did not work on Warhead. That's true. Uh, although I'm sure part of you would have loved to. I'm, although you were probably like six when that was going <laughs> on. But... <laughs> James Bond versus Mechanical Sharks. Yeah. so awesome yeah. Still yeah, should, uh, <laughs> again go back listen to fred's other episodes godzilla yeah. 3d johnny quest yes. and our two-part uh unmade james bond we did um uh i always forget i know we're friends on like facebook are you on social media in any way that you want people uh, to be able to find you uh, right now facebook okay i mean i mean i'm on some others but i don't do a lot of posting or reading. So, uh, but we and my do. son makes fun of me. He's like, yeah, okay, Gramps. <laughs> and you're like, hey, I'm old now. Leave me alone. <laughs> um, I should also note uh, uh, Fred's background this whole time has been a screen grab from the movie Goldfinger. Again, big fan of Die Hard, not Die Hard, is a friend of Die, fan of Die Hard, but a bigger fan of James Bond. Um, I but just if you thought wanna... it was appropriate for this particular story since we have a gold heist in Cliffhangers and <laughs> Goldfinger also has a gold heist. Um, and I'll segue that into saying if you want to watch video of our podcast, you should download the Electric Now app, which gets you access to free movies and TV shows and relevant here video of our podcast and the other podcasts here on the Electric Surge Network. You should follow us on Twitter at Never Made Film and Instagram at Best Movies Never Made. We'd like to thank everyone at Electric Surge, including Bill Ritter and our producers, Mark A. Altman and Dean Devlin. Until next time, this is Josh Miller and Stephen Scarlatta saying we won't see you at the movies. This show is produced by Dean Devlin and Mark A. Altman and is an Electric Surge Network production.